Well, we're uh, still in our Acts Bible study series, and this is part number 21. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 tonight. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I've titled the message tonight, Saul the Persecutor. Saul the Persecutor. We'll go ahead and read those four verses there. Acts chapter 8. Start with verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Father, thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Help us now as we try to preach. Lord, may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we finished up chapter 7, and we looked how quickly Stephen's defense, or his sermon, you could call it a sermon, turned uh, from everything he was trying to teach those um, that council, the Sanhedrin council, to really an attack and a charge against them for what they've done. Uh, he told them they were acting like their fathers before them, persecuting the prophets and resisting the Holy Spirit. He called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And uh, this did not set well with those men. Uh, they took offense to it. And uh, the Bible says they were cut to the heart, and uh, then they rushed on him like a pack of wild animals. Uh, they were gnashing on him with their teeth, and they drug him outside the city. They picked up stones, and they stoned Stephen to death. Now, the last words we heard out of Stephen's mouth were these, Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, we also read last week in chapter 7 and verse 8, the Bible said, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And here we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus for the very first time in our Bible. Now, as we discussed last time, many times before in the past, and you'll probably hear me say it many other times, this man Saul is, of course, who we usually refer to as the Apostle Paul. Now, I can't even start counting the number of times I've heard men get up and preach a message or a Sunday school teacher say, you know, the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul. But the fact is, that is not true. The Lord never changed his name to Paul. He just starts referring to him as Paul later on in the text. Uh, nowhere in the Bible do you read where the Lord changed his name. In fact, we're told point blank in Scripture that he was called both. Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, the Bible said, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And that would be the last time the Bible refers to him as Saul. However, it refers to him as Saul after he, he gets saved. And so it wasn't that he got saved and his name changed. His name was always Paul and it's always Saul. They're two different types of names. One's a Hebrew name and one's a Roman name. And you may be thinking, well, Pastor, why are you spending so much time on this? This is kind of trivial, isn't it? Uh, listen, I believe every single word of the Bible is true. 
And I think that God put everything in here for a reason. I don't think we ought to take away from it, and I don't think we ought to add to it. I think we ought to preach what God says is in here. And uh, first of all, I don't consider anything in the Bible trivial. I believe every single word of it. Second of all, God's not the author of confusion. Nowhere in the Bible is God confused, but men certainly are. Uh, when you start saying from behind the pulpit or a Sunday school lecturing that God did this or God did that and it's not in the Bible, like God changed Saul's name to Paul, you're adding something to God's Word. And we're cautioned not to do that in God's Word. Thirdly, his name never changed. His Hebrew name was the traditional Saul, was his Hebrew name. Probably named after King Saul, as most of those Hebrew uh, boys were. Um, his Roman name, however, is Paul, which means small in stature. Now, some believe that means Paul was a little guy. I don't know. Maybe he was. The important thing to remember here is that God ordained Paul to be a preacher unto the Gentiles. A preacher unto the Gentiles. So the Gentiles consisted mainly of who? Romans. They were not Jews. And so they would be fam familiar with the name Paul and they would give him more recognition than they would some man named Saul. Because they hear Saul and they automatically think he's a Jew. And so uh, he, he would be more accepted being identified as a Roman citizen with the name of Paul. Look back at verse 1 there in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. The first part of it. And Saul was consenting unto his death. The his is Stephen of course. Is who it his is. Now to be consenting unto something means that you're pleased with it and you agree with it. You wholeheartedly believe that it was the right thing to do, so he consented to it. You know, when you give somebody consent to do something, that means you agree to let them do what they want to do. Well, Paul agreed, this is what we ought to do. We ought to kill this guy. So Paul was very pleased about the, the death of Stephen. And he even mentions that fact over in Acts chapter 20 when he told what transpired between him and the Lord when the Lord called him uh, there um, to be a preacher. And he was trying to explain why the brethren in Jerusalem would not accept him. And this is what he said, Acts 22 and 20. It says, And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. So Paul, you know, uh, when the Lord called him to preach, he had a lot of things against him. Uh, his fellow Jewish uh, brothers were all against him. The disciples didn't want to accept him. They knew him as a persecutor, as a prosecutor. They knew him as a bad guy. And uh, Paul even says so. He said, look, I was there when that Stephen was, was killed, and I agreed to it. I consented unto it, and I even held the clothes them that did it. Second part of that verse, one there, it says, And at the, that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Well, obviously, based on the zeal that these men had after murdering Stephen, uh, they're like, uh, they're bloodthirsty now. Uh, and the Jews decided it was open game on Christians. They wanted to completely stomp out Christianity in the name of Jesus once and for all. Do you know there's places like that right now in this world? Try to be a Christian over <laughs> in some of these places in the world. Go to North Korea and tell them you're a Christian. I was listening to Christian persecution news last night talking about people in North Korea. Uh, who was found to be Christians. They take your entire family and imprison you in prison camps. They do all kinds of things to you over there. Uh, we know what they do, those, those uh, 
Islamic, uh, those Muslims and, and those uh, extremists, how they cut their heads off because they're Christians. Uh, that's the kind of man that Paul was when it came to Christianity. He hated them. And so the Jews began persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. And that consisted of several things, probably arresting them, harassing them, beating them, threatening them. We know they uh, cast them into prison and did things to them. And at that time, there were thousands of Christians there in Jerusalem. Remember, they'd all came together, and the Bible kept telling us that they had multiplied. There would be 3,000 saved and another 1,000, and they kept multiplying. And so there are several thousand Christians now in Jerusalem, and now the Jews are coming at them like, a, you know, like they're fair game. And so what this, what, what this did, as you look at the last part of verse 1, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So it looks like the Jews have had great success, doesn't it? They managed to scatter the Christians all over the world. Well, I'm sure it looked like they had great success, but what they didn't realize was they were just spreading the gospel. They were spreading Christianity all over the country. Um, they thought they'd destroyed the church that way. They thought if they stomp out all these Christians in Jerusalem, the name Jesus would not be mentioned again. We could finally shut those people up and uh, get back to the way things used to be and not worry about it. Uh, not so fast. They didn't realize was the church cannot be confined to a place. The church is everywhere. All they managed to do was make the church even bigger by spreading it all over Judea. Except there in verse 1, the last part says, except the apostles. Now, the Bible does not explain the reasons the apostles did not scatter. Um, perhaps it was because of their experience of dealing with this type of behavior already, and they understood that their work for the Lord was important. And um, so I believe they stayed behind uh, to make sure that the church didn't get completely out of Jerusalem. And so we know that uh, some of the men, uh, James, became the, the, the church father there in Jerusalem and such. And so um, the Lord's brother, James. And so the apostles didn't scatter at that time. Uh, they were determined not to let the church be defeated in Jerusalem. Look at that next verse, verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. We're not told who the devout men were that carried Stephen. Uh, it probably was not the apostles because I believe the Bible would have told us that's who it was. It says devout men. So it could have been any, any good men. Uh, it might be religious men or very decent upstanding men. But they've come and they've took uh, the body of Stephen and take him to have a proper burial. And so uh, the Bible uses that word devout right there uh, actually three times in Luke 2 and 25. Is speaking about Simeon. You remember Simeon, the old man there in the temple, when they took the Lord Jesus there uh, at, at the, the time to be took. And in Luke 2 and 25, the Bible says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. So these men that took Stephen were probably similar to Simeon. They were devout, religious, and uh, just men. Uh, the Bible uses that word again in Acts 2 and 5. It says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And then you know what happens after that. These, these men get saved. But uh, those three times are the only times you read that word devout in, the, in, the, in our King James Bible. 
Look at the, the first part of verse 3 there. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Havoc of the church. And that's not a, a word we use very much, is it? You ever, you ever use the word yourself? If you're not talking about something in the Bible? I'm going to wreak havoc on them. <laughs> Maybe you have. I don't know. Well, um, I was reading an old commentator I like. He's, he's uh, it's from year long. I don't know how old it is. It's a long, hundreds of years old. A man named Albert Barnes, and he's got his notes on the Bible, and he says this about it. It says, he made havoc. This word is commonly applied to wild beasts, to lions, wolves, and etc., and denotes the devastations which they commit. Saul raged against the church like a wild beast, a strong expression, denoting the zeal and fury with which he engaged in persecution. You know, one of my favorite Bible heroes in the Bible is Paul. And I love reading everything about him. I mean, from what it starts right there all the way, you know, you get all through his books and all. Uh, I probably have 50 different books about the Apostle Paul back here in my study. And... Uh, I love studying about the man because we see someone like this who's, who's wreaking havoc, who's raging, who's like a wild animal against everything that's good. I mean, these Christians are, are the, the, the definition of goodness. And the way they're raging on them, how, how Saul rages on them. Now, I want you to notice the Bible consistently applies the word church when it talks about it. The ecclesia. It's a called out assembly. We talked about it in our message there a couple of weeks ago. And so it's assembly of people. It's not a building. Uh, Saul wasn't raging against a building. He wasn't raging against a temple or a synagogue. He was raging against the church, the called out assembly of the people, Christians. It said Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women committed them to prison. Now, we know the early church met in several different locations when it began. It met in, temple, in the temple. It met in synagogues. It met in homes, as we see right there, entering into every house. So he was going into the houses where he knew people were gathering together to have services and to worship together and pulling them out and committing them to uh, prison. And I'm sure it wasn't a gentle arrest. I'm sure he didn't go in there and say, would you please come with me? Uh, I want to I show you something and then lock them in. No, I'm sure they... They grabbed them, they roped them, they drug them, they got them out of them houses, and they put them in prison. Uh, it wasn't something just uh, simple. And so there's several instances in, in the Bible where we see a people meeting in homes. In Acts 2 and 46, it says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And then in Acts 5 and 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And then later in Acts chapter 12, you may remember the story, and Peter is in prison. And uh, they're praying for him in a lady's house, Rhoda. Uh, they're at her house, and the church is gathered together, and they're praying for Peter to be released. And listen to what it says in Acts 12, 12 through 13. And when he had considered the thing. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Aroda. And so all this church, when their preacher was in jail, they were gathered together in this home and uh, as a church body. They were praying together. 
and no doubt they were worshiping the Lord. And uh, um, my former church that we had, Porch Light, we modeled ourselves after the early New Testament church. We met in homes. We would go to people's houses and have cottage prayer meetings, and we met in our own home. And uh, some people, you know, today will get to extremes and say, well, the church shouldn't even be in a building at all because it wasn't in the Bible. Well, that's, not, that's not necessarily true. Uh, they did meet in synagogues. They did meet in temples. Uh, I believe wherever God's people are, that's where church meets. And so whether you do it in a house, you do it in a, in a building, it, it doesn't matter. Um, while in Ephesus, Paul, uh, when he was uh, teaching the people about Jesus for three months, he was in a, uh, a local synagogue. And uh, there was a dispute that arose, and he had to move out of the synagogue and began meeting along with the disciples in a place called the School of Tyrannus. Uh, this was obviously some type of building or a place that was set aside for teaching. And so they allowed Paul to teach and preach there for a total of two years. And so they didn't always just meet in homes. We do know they met on riverbanks as well. Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, the, the apostles went there, or Paul went there on his missionary journey and the women were there at the riverbanks, and Lydia got saved there. And so the church gathered there as well. And so uh, we find the Apostle Paul meeting together with his disciples there. Um, I didn't read it. It's in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 11. You can read that in your, your Bible study. Um, but it says that in one place he was in an upper chamber with many lights. And we remember when he was preaching for so long that the, the young man or young lad fell out of the window and uh, um, was practically, I guess he was dead, and uh, he came back. But uh, that was probably somebody's home there, I'm not sure. But it was an upper chamber. All right, look at, back at verse 3, the second part of it. It says, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, committed them to prison. Now, obviously, Saul had uh, carte blanche to do whatever he pleased to Christians. Uh, he had nothing holding him back. Nobody was restricting his actions. He, if he wanted to do it, he did it. I guess uh, he was like, uh, who was it, the FBI or something? They come to your door, you don't have any rights that the FBI show up. They can bust your door down and come in and sit on your couch. And so uh, I doubt Paul single-handedly by himself pulled all these Christians out of their homes and committed them to prison. I'm sure he had a lot of help. Um, Saul was very zealous in his persecution of Christians. And he talks about it from time to time. In Acts chapter 26, listen to what he says. Acts 26, 9 through 11. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See that? Contrary. I like that word. I use that word a lot. Uh, I believe uh, Saul was from the south part of Tarsus. He's southern. Uh, verse 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul wasn't, that wasn't no joke. I mean, Paul shows up your house, or Saul, as they would have known him, if Saul shows, shows up at your door, you better run because uh, you're not getting away. I mean, even when they were uh, sentenced to death, uh, Saul was happy about it. And uh, even, it says, compelled him to blaspheme. 
And you know what they do to uh, Christians over in those Muslim countries. Put them down there on the, on, the, on the sand, tie their hands behind their back, sword right behind them, tell them they, they've got to uh, uh, deny Christ, accept Allah. They cut their heads off. Well, that's the kind of thing Saul did. He also mentions his zeal in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He said, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul's not bragging right there. What he's saying is this is how bad I used to be. Guys, you can't believe it. After I got saved, I completely changed because I'm not the same guy I used to be. I used to do bad things. You heard about it. You've heard the conversations in time past. You know, I was, uh, I was the Jew of all Jews, and uh, I persecuted the church beyond measure. There was nobody worse than me. So Saul was Tarsus. Of Tarsus was ruthless. And he was determined to destroy Christianity and would do anything to make that happen. Look at verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Well, we see the results in all of Saul's persecution of the church. It caused the gospel to be spread even further. Saul was responsible for the spreading of the gospel even before he was saved. <laughs> he didn't know it, but he was. Um, you know, we, we, we read this in the Bible, and sometimes we may glaze over it and think, well, you know, I, I know all the story of Paul and everything that happened and all that stuff like that. I don't think we realize just the, the, the amplitude of this and exactly how bad it was at that time. We have no idea what it's like to be persecuted in this country. Now, I know people hate Christians in this country. It don't take you long to uh, get in a public place or start reading a, uh, something that's been published or posted about Christianity, and you can see people come out, and they would do like Saul of Tarsus if they had the, had the means. They would kill us. They would cut our heads off. They'd do anything to us because they hate Jesus that much. They hate us because they hate him, and they hate everything Christian. Listen, I want to read you, and we'll be finished. I'm going to read what Albert Barnes said uh, concerning the scattering and preaching of the word. I thought it was pretty interesting. I want to share that with you. It's, he says, They were manifestly common Christians who were scattered by the persecution. And the meaning is that they communicated to their fellow men in conversation wherever they met them, and probably in the synagogues where all Jews had a right to speak, the glad tidings that the Messiah had come. It is not sad that they set themselves up for public teachers or that they administered baptism or that they founded churches. But they proclaimed everywhere the news that a Savior had come. Their hearts were full of it. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and they made the truth known to all whom they met. We may learn from this, first of all, that persecution tends to promote the very thing which it would destroy. Secondly, that one of the best means to make Christians active and zealous is to persecute them. And that's a scary thought right there. Does it take us having to be persecuted before we're going to get up off our pew and, and take action? Does it take something like that? Does it take somebody 
cursing the name of Jesus in front of you for you even to speak up to him? Is that what it takes? Do we have to be persecuted before we ever stand for Christ? I'm afraid that's, that's what it comes down to mostly these days. Thirdly, that it's right for all Christians to make known the truths of the gospel. When the heart is full, the lips will speak. And there's no more impropriety in their speaking of redemption than of anything else. Look, we can talk about ball games, we can talk about wrestling, we can talk about NASCAR, we can talk about everything to anybody. They don't care, they love to hear it. I love to talk about that stuff too. But once you start talking about Jesus, things change. People don't want to talk about Jesus. Go to your workplace. If, if there's people there like they are at my workplace, they don't want to hear about Jesus. They want to hear you talk about the Lord. They want to hear you talk about church. They want to hear about prayer. They want to hear about any of that stuff. But you go in and talk about the, the, the Super Bowl. They're, they're all over that. They love that. Talk about Taylor Swift. Everybody talk about that. But to talk about Jesus, if I, like, like Albert Barnes said, when our heart's full, our lips will speak. Because what comes from our heart, what comes from our lips, comes from our heart. And fourthly, it should be the great object of all Christians to make the Savior known everywhere. By their lives, their conversation, and their pious exhortations and entreaties, they should beseech dying sinners to be reconciled to God. You know, I've had people tell me that they've had, they have family members or friends that are lost, and they don't want to say anything to them because they don't want to make them mad. They don't want to uh, offend them. They don't want them, you know, to, to cause some kind of split or anything like that. Friends, I'll tell you what, we've got to tell them. I, you, you can be somebody's good buddy and friend all day long, but when they have to stand before a righteous judge, when it comes time for them to close their eyes in death, they're going to go to one place, they're going to go to the other. And all these little petty things down here we worry about. I, I don't want somebody to get mad at me. Somebody make fun of me for talking about Jesus. They won't be on the day of judgment. They won't be when they're cast into the lake of fire. But those times we've not said anything, those people we've refused to tell them about Jesus or share the gospel with them, can you imagine them being cast into hell? You never, you never told me. You never said anything to me. I'm going to hate to have to stand before the Lord and answer for everything that I've not done. But it should be our desire to, to let the world know about the Lord, the Lord Jesus. If nothing else, you can tell people your testimony. And you may not have this big, long, drawn-out, wild testimony like some people have. I know some people's got a, just a miraculous testimony to share. And, uh, you know, I thank God for them. But I'd just soon hear somebody say, you know, I was, I was five, six years old and I realized I was a lost sinner bound for hell and I came down and I trusted Jesus as my Savior and I've been saved ever since. You're just as saved as that person that, that spent his whole life cussing and cursing and drinking and, and everything else, whatever they're doing, uh, sinful activity, and then get saved. You're just as saved as they are. And so all of our testimonies are the same. We were lost sinner, bound for hell, believed in the Lord Jesus and what he did for me, and I received him as my Savior, and he saved me. Oh, it's as simple as that, simple as that. All right, I know it's not been very long tonight, but I'm going to stop right there. And then uh, we won't hear more about Saul of Tarsus until the next chapter, I believe it is, or chapter 9 maybe. And then we, we get to see all uh, what happens to him on that road to Damascus when we get there. 
Meanwhile, we're gonna we'll have some other things to uh, to look at in the the rest of this chapter and the next. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the message tonight. I pray that it's been helpful. Lord, help us be better. Lord, help us uh, put our awkwardness behind us, our shyness away. God, and realize that there's souls in the balance, God. Lord, everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Lord, if they don't, they're going to go to hell. Lord, you know that we don't want to see anybody do that, Lord. Lord, even our worst enemies, we don't want to see them go to hell and burn forever. Lord, help us share the gospel with this lost and dying world. Lord, may the abundance of our heart proceed from our mouth, God, and tell others. Lord, help this church here in this this community, God, that seems to be a lost one. Lord, they're doing all kinds of things outside these walls. But Lord, we know you love them too, and Jesus died for them just the same as he did us. Help us, Father, to reach them. May we glorify you. Help us this week. Help us on our way home, Lord. Keep us safe. Bring us back here at our next appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.